Hello, hello. This is Sherry from the Sherry K. Hoff Show, where we focus on living joyfully and successfully in your life and business. I have a beautiful guest here with me today. I can't wait to tell you about him. Um, he is doing some amazing things, and we're going to get you all excited about it. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Hi, Sherry. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, great. Well, let me tell you about Alex. Alex, Budak is a social entrepreneur, UC Berkeley Haas faculty member, and author of Becoming a Changemaker. I love that name. At UC Berkeley, he created and teaches the transformative course, Becoming a Changemaker, and serves as executive director of the Berkeley Haas Global Access Program. As a social entrepreneur, he co-founded StartSomeGood.com ran Sweden's most prominent social innovation incubator, Reach for Change, and was previously at change.org. And we're going to get to know a lot more about Alex here during this conversation. So tell me, what is a change maker? What makes a person a change maker? Oh, what a great place to start our conversation. So throughout my work, um, I've worked with all kinds of people who want to make a difference, who want to have an impact. And I, of course, come from a social entrepreneurship background, which is bringing together sort of tools of business and tools of impact. One of the things I realized is that we so often have identities which are exclusive. So either you're an entrepreneur or you're not, you're an author or you're not, you're an engineer or you're not. And as I began teaching this class at UC Berkeley, I realized that we need a much more inclusive definition of people who aspire to make a difference. And that's where the concept of changemaker comes from. As I think about the concept of change making, I have a very inclusive and open definition. It's simply someone who leads positive change from where they are. And so that definition gives us space to be a corporate innovator, to be a solopreneur, to be an artist. And we it comes from the fundamental belief that all of us can lead positive change from wherever we are, we are in a way that's true to who we are. And that's really what I've made the, the core of this book. Yeah, so I think that you know, really it's saying that leadership isn't about the position that you have. It's about wherever you are, start where you are and work from there. So, so I love that. And I, I love the inclusivity. And one thing I've noticed from the people that I've been interviewing recently is that, you know, the moving away from that model of, you know, I'm hustling hard and I'm giving up my family life and, you know, I'm miserable to everyone around me, even though, you know, I'm financially successful or my business is successful. And I think that, you know, to me, success includes your whole person self. And so this idea of change maker um, just seems so inspiring for people. So I really appreciate your work. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that perspective. One of the things that I've found is that in working with students and executives, normally they come to me because they want to be a change maker in their professional life and the way they show up in the office or in the the workplace. Um, But there's really wonderful positive externalities to being a change maker in terms of how we show up as parents, as partners, um, as siblings. Um, And it's really a mindset that goes beyond the workplace. And it's about how we show up in our work and in our in our life as well. And so it's been a joy to see the way that people have embraced change making as a full identity, not just a professional one. 
Mm-hmm. I remember having this moment. I mean, my youngest is t- almost 22 now, so I'm a little out of like the parenting stage, although I'm finding out it never really ends. <laughs> but um, but I remember having a moment when my kids were younger and have just having that realization of I didn't want to be the parent who was yelling and stressed all the time. And I would have those moments and I'm, I am a pretty chill person, but I really didn't want my kids to feel like I'm the parent who knows everything and you must listen to whatever I say. And so I, I made a decision that I would stop myself. Like once if, you know, I was angry and I was going over that level of, um, you know how the attack can become kind of personal instead of just, I'm really disappointed you did this. Um, and I've stopped myself. I changed the way that I parented and because it was a conscious decision. And so I think that we can change the way that we act in the workplace and at home. So thank you for addressing that and bringing that forward. So you also talk about something that I think is painful for a lot of people, and that is the idea to embrace failure as a means towards leading positive change. So tell us about that. Yeah, it wouldn't be wonderful if we could make all kinds of positive change happen. We never had to fail. We never had any setbacks. That'd be lovely. Uh, but that's just not the way that it is. And so in my my class at Haas and, and in this book, um, we talk a lot about failure because we sh- look at case studies and we show how people who have successfully led change also had to overcome a lot of failures, a lot of setbacks along the way. Something I experienced in my own work as a social entrepreneur um, and as you and I can relate, even as parents, we have our failures and our setbacks also. So um, in the class, what I like to do is we have time talking about, you know, intellectually understanding failure. We look at what the research says about it. And then towards the end of class, I flash up a slide, which has two words, go fail. And students kind of look around nervously and like, is he for real? Is this what's happening here? And then I go, no, I'm serious. And give him the next slide. And next slide says, okay, you have 15 minutes. You have to go leave the classroom and you have to go ask for something and get rejected. And you can't come back until you've actually been rejected. And students start kind of turning red. They start sweating, they're nervous. Because (laughs) how weird is it to go purposely try to fail, to purposely try to get rejected? But of course, there's a method behind this. And this is embedded in the, the book as well, which is it's one thing to intellectually know that we have to fail or that failure is inevitable. Very different thing to feel it somatically. So I want students to go out and actually have that experience. What we find is that when students go out and they try to get rejected, uh, one of two things happens. So one, they ask for something that they think is totally ridiculous, and the person actually says, yes, they're willing to do it. Speaking of kindness, there was a day it was raining on campus, and a student walked out and saw a guy with an umbrella and said, hey, my class is all the way across campus. Would you be willing to walk me over so I don't get wet? Figuring this guy would for sure say no, because he's too busy and he's got things to do. But he said, yes, he was willing to walk a complete stranger totally out of his way 30 minutes to make sure he stayed dry. So how often do we set aside for failure because we simply don't ask in the first place? Yeah. 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 And then the second lesson, of course, is that failure isn't fatal. Students come back and they realize, okay, well, maybe it's slightly uncomfortable in the moment, but no one laughed at me. I'm still here. I'm moving on. And they come back with a newfound perspective. And so I'm Mm -hmm. a good believer that it's not enough to just understand we have to fail but to actually put ourselves in positions where we can learn from it and, and practice it. Yeah. I think, you know, my kids were all athletes and 
I think, you know, when you come up with an athletic background, you do lose like some of your most important lessons that you have are the times when you didn't win the championship or you, you lost an important game. And, um, but I, I'm finding that unless you are in sports or something like that, you don't necessarily have the experience with failing because parents don't want to let their kids fail. And the academic system is set up so that you really can't have any failure to be able to get into the school that you want to get into. And so this whole idea of, you know, failure is so important, you know, sometimes people get into their thirties before they really figure that out, or maybe, maybe even forgiving themselves for some of the mistakes and and failures that they've had from the past. So thank God for your class and for making the students get out there and, and fail. I love it. (laughs) What a great thing to do. (laughs) Um, I'm just picturing them, you know, going, okay, what could we possibly do? And then, um, and expecting to fail and then they're successful. <laughs> it's, it's so I, funny. And so of course I stick around in the classroom and say, Hey, if you need any coaching, need any mentoring, I'll be here. I'll help you come up with stuff. And it's pretty fun to help these students decide what are the things that they're going to ask for. So I had one woman who asked, there was construction going on on campus and she asked a guy driving some huge tra- crane truck if she could uh, use it. And fortunately he said no, which is a good thing, <laughs> but like, that was a good example of like putting yourself out there. It's like a ridiculous ask, but like that guy isn't thinking about her. He, he moved on from it and who knows, yeah. maybe some good things can happen as a result from just putting ourselves out there. Yeah. You know, um, I was in Nashville in October. My, it was my daughter's bachelorette party. And I don't know if that was so smart to go along with her and all of her friends, but, uh, but we had a group of you know, the moms and then a group of girls. And at the end of the night, I was with my group of friends and we were walking. I don't know, even know where we were walking, but we had a veil and we were just walking up to random guys saying, um, can you put this on and can we take a picture with <laughs> you with this on? And I would say that probably only one person said no. You know, and they were just complete strangers and people of all different ages, you know, like from, you know, early 20s to maybe, you know, into their 40s. And I just couldn't get over how willing they were to have their pictures taken with a guys with a veil on yeah. with us, you know. <laughs> How fun. What a great uh, series of stories and photos that probably came out of you being willing to make that ask and to just, just try something. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun and kind of out there. So, um, so what does research show about what it takes to become a change maker? Yeah. So of course I live in the world of academia at UC Berkeley and while there's a lot of feel good stuff behind being a change maker, I have to make the case. I work with executives and other folks who say like, okay, you know, being a change maker sounds good, but how do you know it actually matters? So I've started the first ever longitudinal research study of changemakers. So looking at how do changemakers develop over time and what are the key traits that lead them to be successful changemakers? Uh, it's something called the changemaker index, which is also in the book, you'll have a chance to take the very same changemaker index and see for yourself, what are your strengths as a changemaker and what are some of your greatest areas of development? Um, and so what I find is that there's a couple of really key themes. So one, the most successful changemakers are able and willing to question the status quo. Now, if you look around at the world today, there's all kinds of status quos that are just ready to be questioned, but it's also really hard to do. There's social science that tells us something called the status quo bias. 
So people tend to overvalue things the way they are. There's a lot of complacency with like, well, the way things are, you know, maybe it could be better, but let's just keep it the way it is. Change makers, almost in the definition, they need to find ways to question the status quo, to be able to shake things up, to believe that a better future is possible, and they can actually play some role in doing it as well. And the second thing that I see is that when we talk about leadership, you know, it's so tempting to think about leadership as being, you know, the one person in the, the CEO's office that's telling people what to do. Uh, but as you alluded to, and as I believe, leaders might be scarce. So maybe in a company, there's only one CEO, only one COO. But leadership, the act is abundant. All of us can practice leadership. And so I find that the second most important trait of change makers is being able to influence without formal authority. So in other words, to lead change from where you are. So it's one thing to be the CEO and someone does something simply because of your power position. But it's a much more challenging, but also much more sustainable thing to encourage people to be part of efforts with you. And, and if you're going to lead change, you're going to need people to come along with you. And so in the book, we highlight some examples of folks uh, everywhere from a um, film producer to just a guy who really, really likes composting and wanted others to compost to see how they managed to influence without authority, which is the second key to being a change maker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's challenging too, because, um, you know, there's so much in social media that, um, I mean, there's a lot of, I don't want to use the word negativity, but like the, the feeling of, you know, if I really speak my truth, if I really say, you know, what I think, am I going to get punished for it? You know, and, and sometimes change makers, people who are initiating change do experience that. So how, how can people embrace that part of it um, without getting totally overwhelmed? Yeah, there's, there's a great concept from psychology. It's something called idiosyncrasy credits. And so what this helps explain is that if you're someone who is always questioning the status quo on every single thing, you get kind of annoying. People get kind of tired of you. If you're always questioning everything, then you come off as being a bit contrary or just shaking things up for the sake of it. So this work by Edwin Hollander called Idiosyncrasy Credits helps to understand how it can be more effective in questioning the status quo. So he says you can earn what are called idiosyncrasy credits. So ways of sort of going against the norm. And there's two ways to earn them. So one is simply by competence, by showing that you're good at things, that you have, uh, that you do good work, that you're thoughtful, and so on. The second is that you sometimes go along with the flow. You go along with the way things are. Why that's important is that when you kind of go along with things you don't care that much about. So let's say that there's, I don't know, a banquet that you're helping to plan, and the caterer is like pretty good, but not the best. You go, oh, you know, that, that's fine. The caterer is fine. Um, that way, if you go along with things you don't care as much about, then when you really do care about something, so you want to change the menu and make it sustainable, or you want to do uh, a different type of seating chart, or whatever it is, the more important changes, when people know that you're competent and that you kind of generally go along with the flow, except for when you really care about something, it'll make you that much more effective to be a change maker when you do stand up for something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a more scientific explanation than just saying, pick your battles, you know, yeah. that, yeah. that, yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes people say to me, you're so chill, you know, how can you be so chill? Well, it's because I do that, you know, the, the things that aren't important to me, I'm not, you know, like digging my feet in and, and trying to, you know, argue against everything, but the things that are really important, 
I do bring forward. And, um, and so I think, I think that that is a help because I think sometimes when, especially, I mean, my son's in this college age group, um, and he goes to Hamilton, which is on the East coast. So he's, he's not West, he's East coast, but, um, you know, kids get so inspired with making a difference that it can end up being, you know, like they want to change everything and then end up not changing anything because, you know, it's like that, well, there must be something wrong with everything. (laughs) So, so how do you work through that with your students and with your people that you work with that are really, you know, your environmentalists, your people who are initiating social change? Such a good question. And it's something I see all the time, whether they're an 18 year old freshman, all the way to executives that I work with. Um, It's a common thing that there's so much you want to be changing. How do you know how to get started and to not feel overwhelmed? So I developed a tool. It's called the Changemaker Canvas. Again, something you'll find in the book, which takes change and breaks it down into small, meaningful, actionable steps. And so what we try to do is combine the big vision with the small details. So to be a changemaker, you've got to have that vision of change, but also helping you understand what's the scope of that vision. It's going to be impossible for any single individual to stop climate change by themselves. But there are absolutely slices of it that we can take on. What makes sense for you to lead on? Is it that you're going to take action in your local community, in your city, in your state, on your campus? You can take on one aspect of it, making one small change within a wide variety of different changes that we need. And then how can you be what we call a networked leader? How can you think about how your actions complement what other people are doing? Instead of a thousand people all doing the same thing just in their own way, how can you understand the landscape of other change makers and then start to identify where are some gaps, where are some things that I could do uniquely or even better, how could you combine things? So maybe your son in Hamilton recognizes this is a really cool change that someone else is doing on the West Coast. Now let me bring it to my campus and use that same model in a slightly different way, tweak it to the environment, but then run with it there. That's how we can build sustainable and scalable change together. Mm. Mm, good points. Good points. Um, so you also talk about the role of empathy in change efforts. Yeah. Super important to, to lead with empathy. And I think so often the higher up we get in an organization, the easier it is to sort of uh, turn off our empathy. As you're sitting higher up in an organization, you're of course taking on much more complexity but it's easy to forget about how others might be appreciating the change. Patty Sanchez has done great work that uh, showed that 50% of executives don't take into account how other people will perceive their change message. So in other words, they sit in an office by themselves, they come up with the perfectly crafted message of change, send it out, and then they go, wait, half of us didn't actually think about how someone maybe on the front lines would think about that change. And so empathy is a theme that runs throughout the book, runs throughout my class, Um, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And crucially, it's not the same as sympathy. So it doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It just means that you're able to sort of see things from their perspective. And if you want to successfully bring all kinds of people, diverse groups of people along on your change efforts, you've got to empathize. You've got to understand where people are coming from. Whether that means empathizing with someone who feels really inspired by your change, but is scared to take action, or someone who might have a similar goal to you, but see things in a slightly different way. Being able to use empathy unlocks your ability to lead change and unlocks your ability to galvanize people to come along with you on your change efforts. Mm. You know, one of my guests um, from a few weeks ago was talking about how the number one predictor of employee satisfaction and success 
in the workplace is that employees know what their job is and simple, right? I mean, that is like the simple, you know, the CEO is thinking, of course they know what their job is, but do they know what their job is? Do they really know? And and she even went so far as to say, you should be able to write it on a sticky note. So, so I think that highlights how the perspective between, you know, being detached in an office and coming up with a great change idea compared to what's really happening, you know, in the offices and, and with the staff. Um, I remember my daughter's company that she works for, um, they did a survey and like immediately after the survey, they, they implemented massive change. Like they, the people they surveyed really were honest about what wasn't working. It's a very fast growing company and they were really honest about what they needed and the company delivered. They listened to the survey results and really, um, you know, instigate a positive change. And when I see that, that makes me excited. That makes me really excited. That's so, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and, really listening. and then when people know that you're not just sort of reading the words that they say, but actively listening to them and taking action, that's really powerful. That's going to drive long-term uh, growth and a lot of employee satisfaction, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I was I was inspired when um, she was telling me about it. So tell us where to find your book and um, and like any juicy things that we should specifically look for. I'm sure the whole book is juicy, but <laughs> but sometimes authors have like the recommended way to read it. You know, is it dive in and read the whole thing in two hours or? <laughs> <laughs> What's the best approach? Oh, I, I love it. Um, so it, it's available at changemakerbook.com, available on Amazon and any other place that you like buying books. And I think there's a couple ways that you can read it. So one, I've seen a lot of people that are quite honestly, just, they're just binge reading it. They just kind of can't put it down. They just keep reading it. And that's a great way to go. Um, but the other way that I love uh, for you is perhaps you want to do it in a book club. So at the end of each chapter, I have a section called See the Change, Be the Change. So see the change repeats some of the key lessons from each chapter. And then be the change gives you a challenge, something that either I an exercise from my class or something that allows you to apply the lessons from the chapter. Um, and I think we're change making is a team sport. So it's fun to do it together. Um, so I think if, if you're someone who's inclined to do it this way, it may be fun for you to read it with a group of friends or a group of coworkers and to challenge each other to do some of those challenges at the end of each chapter, a great chance for you to reflect on what you're learning. And then also like my students put the ideas in, into practice as well. Yeah. It sounds like a great thing for a team, you know, um, for a team to do together too. So, um, gosh, I really appreciate your being here today and sharing your wisdom with us. And I'm inspired about the next generation and I'm inspired about people leading from wherever they are and being a change maker, no matter what age they are. And I'm thankful that you're out there getting the message out and helping people do this. So, um, when you reflect back on what we've talked about, what are the highlights that you want people to leave here with today? Oh, thanks. I guess going back to this idea that each and every one of us can be a change maker, that it doesn't require a formal title or authority, that it's us giving ourselves permission to be a change maker. Because 
the world needs each of us to lead positive change from where we are. So I hope that you'll see this conversation we had today, as well as the book, as a radically inclusive invitation for you to step into your potential as a change maker. And uh, on behalf of communities and the world, I can't wait to see what you do next as a result. Oh, wow. There's nothing I can add to that. That's really powerful. (laughs) Thank you so much. So there you go, everyone. Check out the Changemaker book um, on Amazon, anywhere you can buy books. And I look forward to talking to everyone soon. Have a good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I love you and have a beautiful day. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is sponsored by the Living Your Vision course for creating your optimal life. This course is for creating and fulfilling your dream. Make your dreams your reality instead of a someday idea. Set your vision for your life in motion. Move from trying to be just a little bit better and shift to deliberately creating the life you want at the level you want. Most people are not purposely thinking small. They just have never considered or allowed themselves to think bigger or even on an epic level. Even big thinkers, perhaps you're one of them, often say, I just don't have time to devote to developing a detailed vision of how I want my life to be. What's stopping you from creating your vision the way you really want it? What if you let go of anything that is stopping or blocking you? What if you stepped into your creative zone and designed a compelling vision that drove all of your daily habits and decisions? You can check out the Living Your Vision course at sherrykayhoff.com. That's S-H-E-R-I-K-A-Y-E-H-O-F-F.com. And you'll want to go to the coaching and courses tab.